The Sydney Festival podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and those who are yet to emerge, and thank them for their wisdom. For 45 years, Sydney Festival has brought you bold performance, cultural celebrations, art, and big ideas to our sticky Sydney summers. I'm Wesley Enoch, the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival 2021. Our program this year is called Australian Made, and it's mostly about recovering after the year we've had. But it's also about connecting with our community, about reinvigorating our incredible local art scene, and to remind us of how resilient we really are. So let's get started. Hi, my name's Scott. I'm the Artistic Director of Earth, performance company based in Sydney. I remember you talking about the early days of Earth where there was a small group of you kind of working along. Tell us a little bit about how Earth came to be. Well, in a nutshell, I got arrested for protesting (laughs) for um, protecting old growth forests in East Gippsland. And when I got out of jail, (laughs) I got back to Ballarat and I um, grabbed my two best friends and we started a company because we really wanted to make theatre that spoke about our concerns, which was, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s was pretty much the same things that we're concerned about now, but it was very environmental. We were, you know, for three years, we were very much sort of artist activists. And that's the thing about, you know, um, visual, physical, theatre companies, performance companies. I mean, you actually go beyond all of those kind of genres in many ways. How would you, if someone had never seen your work, how do you define your work? Oh, it's really easy. We just make creatures and the environments that they live in. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it's really brilliant. But I know that you've got a whole history of work, um, especially t- talking about First Nations creatures and environments as well. What's driving all of that for you? When I was 10, Star Wars came out and David Attenborough released Life on Earth. Mm-hmm. So those two events the look at the the way that we see our natural world and also the potential in what we see in the future and in space came to collided together. And if you think about what I do now, those two things make complete sense. The work with um, in with First Nations or with First Nations stories has very much been a journey of my own about trying to find what is right because it's so confusing out there. There's so much... There's so many lies and misinformation and the best way to find out is just to go and ask people directly. Mm. I mean, uh, uh, that's maybe uh, a moral for everyone who's listening in. If you don't know about something, go and ask the people who are really connected with it. I know when we worked together with Nagan and the Stars, I'm going to say, what's that, 14 years ago? How long ago was that? 15 years. 15 years ago when we were all young and fresh and less grey. Like that story. And I remember the process you went through, which was – going and talking to people of those lands, those environments, and asking those people about these creatures again. I mean, that was really fascinating. It was the first time I'd seen that where something from a fictional world was actually being researched in the real world and being asked to have authenticity. It was pretty amazing. Well, it was the right thing to do. Mm. Um, The Nargan and the Stars, as you say, is a piece of fiction, but it was written by Patricia Wrightson, and it was written, I think, as, a, as an attempt by her to try and repopulate um, the landscape with spirit creatures 
you know, she was trying to populate an area in the Hunter Valley and she sort of took artistic licence and located creatures from other countries or other country in that um, Hunter Valley area. And at the time I think she was a huge advocate for Australians understanding its Indigenous heritage. It's just that we're much wiser now, Mm -hmm. you know, something like what Patricia did could never happen. Well, no, and I think that each th- each thing is a step. The idea of even taking Nargan and the Stars to the next step of uh, authenticating, if that's the right word, connecting it back to um, a much longer history. And this notion, I remember the work I've seen of yours, um, of Earth's, about the thylacine as well, mm. and these, these creatures that uh, are no longer with us are extinct. Well, a bigger question. I can see you raise your eyebrows there. But these ideas of bringing them alive again for us in front of us. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an enigma to the thylacine. And we sp- I spoke to this lovely lady in Hobart who's 101 years old who remembers thylacines from when she was a child mm. and walking through the bush in, in Tassie and knowing and finding this family of thylacines on her way to school. Wow. And there was something about sitting in the in the nursing home that she was in and looking out the window and looking, you know, towards the mountains, towards the trees. And I just realised at that point that 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 mystery or that enigma of the thylacine puts the magic or the intangibility into the landscape. It makes us value it more. Mm. So whether the thylacines are extinct or whether they are living somewhere secretly. Yeah, yeah. Just having that feeling kind of makes everything more valuable. It makes yeah. it more precious. It makes us, um, I don't know, I think I, 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 love, I love the enigma of it. And why, I mean, to ask the question, there's a lot of puppets in the work that you do, inflatables as well, environments in which these, these um, creatures exist. Why was puppetry your go-to to make all that come alive? Sesame Street. <laughs> what do you mean by Sesame Street? Well, my, you know, my I've I've been obsessed with puppets since I was a child, and I think, you know, at the age of five, five and a half, my dad was a television repairman, and we uh, got to have one of the first colour televisions in Ballarat wow. as an ex, as a test, and I just remember that um, Sesame Street just came alive, and I was obsessed with it. Like I seriously used to pretend to go to school (laughs) and then come back home and watch Sesame Street. I got caught wagging it in prep. (laughs) Well, that's a a Jim Henson, the Henson Studios. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of different influences in terms of puppetry and visual. True. Who are some of your influences? I mean, Jim Henson's a huge influence and what Jim did was he kind of, he he was very much a thinker. He was very much a a person who had incredible ideas and was sort of driven to sort of um, bring them to life. And the thing that I loved so much about what he did was um, he created this thing called Sesame Street where people and puppets lived Mm. harmoniously. Nobody ever questioned that that anyone was any different. There was a beautiful equality in Sesame Street. And, you know, then Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and... To a lesser extent, maybe um, never any story, but cu- cu- currently the ideas around Lion King and Warhorse, where 
the bigger picture or, or the um, the potential of puppetry has gone from being mm. the children's domain to a much more yeah. universal domain. Well, I was, I was going to pick that up, this idea that some of those examples you're saying are, are mostly for um, families, for children, but your work is not exclusively Quite the opposite, actually. It's a very broad audience. Mm. When I think about um, the Nick Cave work, oh, Murder. Yeah. That was great. It was fantastic. That was not for children no. in many, many ways. It's probably not for some of the adults. Well. <laughs> just to say, just to unpack that, so uh, using some Nick Cave um, uh, songs, song cycle really, yep. to unpack. And there were some very visceral characters that were being created there through the puppetry. I think... It's interesting, our history with the festival is a fascinating one. Sydney Festival is the reason why I moved to Sydney from Ballarat. Um, we got a show into the festival and as we were driving up the highway, we had a car accident and everything got destroyed. Oh. So when we arrived in Sydney, we had to rebuild the entire show. That was back in 1993. What was the show? We did this show called Bad Jelly the Witch, which was a story by Spike Milligan. Uh-huh. It was very reckless and haphazard. <laughs> Typical um, kids from Ballarat. I was sticking gunpowder in soup ladles and lighting it in the public, only to find out that you weren't allowed to do that. <laughs> but it's like every every time we do something with Sydney Festival, there's a part of us that kind of relishes the opportunity to break our own mould, to change what the way that people perceive what we do. Like... Mm. You know, a lot of people will know that we're the dinosaur people, that we have um, for a very long time done, set quite a benchmark actually for dinosaur puppetry. This idea that Earth is known for a number of dinosaur shows, Mm. but also you've been using the techniques of making these creatures for museums, especially Mm. in North America and other places. But this idea of using uh, puppetry, using formation of creatures in an educative environment but also in a playful environment of learning and knowing. So George F. MacDonald, the anthropologist, said to me that museums are the new sacred sites, that in this contemporary world the thing that we value the most is our history and that in those sacred sites the artists like ourselves become the shamans. Mm. He compared sort of like the work that we do to say a shaman in a West African village who for one week of the year would transform into a leopard and his role would be to bring um, prosperity and good fortune to the tribe. But every now and then he'd chase the kids around and make them scream. (laughs) So there was something that was very sacred and important, but there's also just that fun-loving kind of Mm. um, clowning or, you know, disruption that that I love. And everyone um, suspends disbelief and actually invests in these animals, even though they're being seen to be manipulated by a human Even being. though we tell them that they're Yes, not. <laughs> he keeps saying it's this is a puppet, but in fact there's an investment in these puppets because yeah. we want to believe. We want to believe that they still could exist and we could understand them more, um, which maybe takes us to, to, to Duba, mm. which is an extraordinary piece. It, it breaks the mould in many ways because I think it's not necessarily, and you might need to correct me on this, it's not necessarily a narrative-driven piece. It's an experiential piece. Maybe unpack it for us a little bit. It's influenced a lot by my, um, the work that I do with Chiara, with mm. Chiara Guidi. So, you know, 10 years ago I met this amazing Italian director who, the way she spoke, I suddenly realised that she was affirming everything that I'd been doing. 
But there's this whole thing around um, engagement and invitation and and immersing people. Like, you know, Kiara definitely is like the the grandmother of immersive theatre, mm. ch- particularly for children, and risky, dangerous, brave work, not not to be trifled with. And Duba sort of has emerged over the years as a, a, a desire to lead people into spaces to see things they wouldn't otherwise see and to create profound experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the conversation you've been talking about already about animals that are endangered or extinct uh, and the role of a human being in their extinction, perhaps. I mean, that this idea that we should take responsibility, we should step up and see what role we play in, if not climate change, then the changing of these environments for these creatures. What should the audience experience, well, expect when they're coming through? What are they? What should they prepare for? Our audience needs to be prepared to throw away all their expectations, be prepared to be confronted, just be available to receive. Mm-hmm. What we're asking our audience to do is to trust a group of children to lead them blindfolded into a dark cave and to only reveal what's in the cave once they're in there. Mm. This choice to have children taking people, adults of family, people into a darkened room blindfolded. I mean, already I go, oh, I I feel a bit confronted by that. I feel like that. Why should I put my trust in these kids? Because it's, oh my my God, what what a wonderful thing for a child to be able to manipulate an adult. (laughs) But also as a metaphor, this notion of if adults cannot trust the next generation. Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. That's exactly what it is for me, that you go, actually, I have to trust that you are going to take care of the world as well. Yeah. And what do, if I'm not prepared to give over that trust, then, you know. A, you should be, we should spend more time together. <laughs> it's also the idea that um, how is it possible that these rare animals are existing in various places that encourage works? And maybe it's that willingness that children have that everything has potential, that you don't need an explanation, it's just there. Originally the, uh, the idea was around these rare, threatened, critically endangered creatures from all over the world were seeking refuge in various parts of Sydney. So it was sort of more of a sad story. But I feel like we need more positiveness. I mean, nature will find a way mm. is enough to explain why a colony of lead beta possums are taking up residence in someone's bathroom or a snow leopard is living in a teenage girl's bedroom. Or It's more about the goodness of that rather than the sadness of it. Yes, okay. And so the children are the ones who open the eyes for the adults. The adults are more interested in their mortgages and their all of the, their relationships and all that sort of stuff, whereas children just see the world as it is. Mm. And to put your trust in those children and then allow them to show you what they have discovered, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the work that I think we're now wanting to invest in more. Mm. Earth is making a shift from being gig-based to wanting to introduce more non-outcome-driven experiments, you know, like to, to thrive more on being even more secretive about what we do. Secretive? Well, you know, Earth isn't a company that goes around bragging very much. We don't let everyone know what we're doing. We're not – you don't know that we've done 48 – you know, like – shows in six months in six Mm. different countries and all that sort of bullshit. 
we're really kind of knuckling, you know, burrowing in deeper into what we do. And yes, you're, you're well known here in Australia, but you're even more well known in other places around the world. COVID has really shut down our financial backbone because we don't have a show touring America and Japan and China and the UK at the moment. But um, COVID had actually given us this time to really consolidate Duba. Yeah. And... Oh yes, what, 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 so, there's a bag. There's, there's. I can see a bag, and Scott's going into the bag now. So I, this is. I'm in love with this. Oh, okay. And it's a very special creature. And because it's, because this is a podcast, no one can see it. No. This. Oh, is oh gorgeous! A lead beater possum. Oh, that's so stunning. So lead beater possums are from Victoria. Mm. And there was only 30 of them left. And uh, I went down to Healesville Sanctuary to do a, um, a little consultancy and went into this nursery where um, they were breeding this new colony. And they've now got over 100. And so this is a little creature that has been is rebounding back from extinction. Wow. And, it's, and that's life-size too, isn't it? Yeah, this it? is that's, life-size. It's maybe as big as my hand. He's, the puppet's sitting in my hand right now, and it's because of the eyes. You get caught looking at the eyes, and you can see, as, as Scott's manipulating it, a real sense of its life. Now, obviously, in in the real world, a, a live lead beater possum is... It's impossible. It's impossible. You it's can't a, touch it. That would be impossible for you to do. Yeah. So in this moment, empathy happens, and I think that's that, that question you were asking about why puppetry. Mm. Puppetry allows us, if we do it well enough, to kind of create empathy. So in this moment, uh, an adult is led blindfolded into a cave and a child reveals a lead beater possum. But it, we control that space. The space is dark. We mm. control the sound, the smell, everything you see, everything you hear, and we can focus it in so that we know that in that moment everyone will love this, this mm. creature. So all of our senses will be activated. Yeah, or restricted. Or restricted. Oh, yes, the blindfolding as well. No, there's more. Oh, wait, there, there's more. Well, we, let's not give away too much. No, no, we don't want to. <laughs> you talk to these parents who go, oh, my kids love your work and, oh, we can't, when's the next one? And, oh, we'll get tickets as soon as we find out. You go, well, actually, this isn't for your kids. This is for you. Mm. So this is a this is a work that um, features children as the hosts or as the guest, mm. and uh, yeah, we're inviting adults to be part of what I imagine is going to be a, a whole new direction for the company. Well, I think too, you're inviting them to say, stop talking about the superannuation yes, and talk about exactly. the supernatural. Talk about the supernatural, not the superannuation. <laughs> I want. People, I want adults to come out of this experience and feel that they can do something that they've been putting off for a really long time mm. or to want to find a, a wildlife rescue organisation and donate some money or, mm. you know, it is, it, it, there is a call to action. This isn't just a, a nice, pleasant, interesting, provocative journey. We hope that at the end when people walk black out, back out into the, the blinding light of, of – um, of day that they feel inspired to want to do something. And I don't want to tell anybody what they should do because I do think that everybody knows what they should do. Well, I think you're tapping into this idea, you know, like Greta Thunberg as well, from the voices of young people, 
we are hearing the conscience of humanity too. Oh, my God. Hanging out with these kids, mm. they're talking about stuff. Like at 11, they're talking about anarcho-communism and Marxism. <laughs> what? Yeah. I was in grade six then. I was just worried that I hadn't kissed anybody before I got to high school. <laughs> they're just so more advanced than I am. Well, uh, and I think that the stakes are much higher too. From from you getting arrested looking after old growth forests to the to these young kids now. I mean, I can see a, an absolute through line of both you and the work. Yeah, maybe. Well, don't deny it. I think it's there. There's a sense of a social conscience, but also the idea of um, celebrating life and keeping on the positive side is what I'm hearing you say about yeah, the show as well. Absolutely. I just struggle with compliments sometimes. Yeah, well, anyway, take the compliment. We're talking about the show Duba by Earth, a wonderful show at Carriage Works. You can get to see during the Sydney Festival. So get along. Um, thank you so much, Scott, for coming in. Pleasure. It sounds like the most deadly thing ever. So I can't wait. Can't wait. Thanks for listening. For more information on Sydney Festival, head to sydneyfestival.org.au. And be sure to subscribe to the Sydney Festival channel wherever you get your podcasts.